0: As the functional approach to medicine continues to evolve, we are now witnessing the emergence of a powerful systems oriented model capable of addressing the healthcare needs of the 21st century. In April 2016, Biocerticals will be holding the fourth Biocerticals Research Symposium to provide healthcare professionals with leading, cutting-edge research, highlighting the future of integrative and functional medicine. We've chosen the world's leading functional medicine experts to show you how they integrate the explosion of research with the latest in genetic science, nutrition and metabolic medicine. For more information, please visit the Bioceuticals website at biocuticals.com.au. Medicine and I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. And joining me yet again in the studio today is Dr. Mark Donoghue, a GP of great renown who's got a bit of a name for unravelling complex uh, clinical presentations for people who are uh, the medical model hasn't really worked for. So welcome back, Mark. It's a pleasure to be here as
1: usual. I know. Lots of exciting stuff <laughs> to talk about now.
0: And we do have lots of stuff to talk about, Mark. So today we're going to be talking about making sense of media hype. And I'm not necessarily saying that's negative, but certainly the media can twist it for a
1: sensationalist view, correct? Sure. Sure. And the job of researchers these days is part to please an audience. This is a big change from when I was just a young medical student. Researchers were boring people in boring laboratories with guaranteed income, tenure, And if they did or didn't publish, their jobs were much, much simpler. Now you've got to basically kickstart your pet project and get it out in the public, get public funding for it or get politicians interested in it. And thus, people have become PR machines. The the universities now employ full-time PR to give sexy titles to things that are really, really, really boring in reality. And the problem is you end up with headlines that people go, oh... Folic acid, bad. Oh, beta carotene, bad. Oh, fish oil's good. Oh, fish oil's bad. And that doesn't serve anybody. Mm. All that does is it's like the shouting matches of old where people were uninformed. People need to understand research does give varied outcomes depending on the questions asked. And the job is to make sense of it. We need a kind of umpire to sit back and say, well, that's the claim. How does this actually play out? And that's what what, uh, practitioners need. We see do this in your practice. Doesn't work. Mm. No matter what you do, it just doesn't work, and you know it doesn't work. Other things passed on, you could try this, you try it, it works over and over. The best example I have from last year's bioceuticals is stewed apples of Mike Ash too trivial for me to even want to consider it. I just thought, oh, (laughs) God, people are going to hate this.
0: They love it. Love it. They get back
1: involved in cooking. Their whole lives start to change. It's made a bigger impact than probably anything I've done on the gut microbiome, and it's simple and it works. As opposed to many claims of a single strain of a probiotic will do X, you do it on 50 people and nothing seems to happen. You've got to go on your clinical experience and say... The claims and the science may be right. In that study, it may be right, but it doesn't work out in mm. clinical practice. And making sense of clinical practice is our job. And just to make a point about probiotics, because you
0: mentioned it, is many practitioners want the results. They want the magic results for the condition presenting them. But that probiotic, when it's studied in a certain group, with certain defined parameters is restricted to those parameters for the results that they got. So, for instance, if you looked at a group in Spain, then they had a Spanish diet. Yes. They are from a Spanish genetic sort of group. That may or may not be translatable to Australians with a different dietary intake Uh, different cultural practice, indeed, even different eating patterns and sleeping patterns. So it's really hard to take that out. And this is where clinical practice comes in, correct?
1: It does. I I think what people forget is what we regard as high-level evidence, the randomized controlled trials. The restriction that we have to remember on RCTs is that they're highly selective in the people who they put in. They Mm. put in a specific group of people. You know, you have Finnish smokers, How much does that translate to the rest of the world? Or you have a particular um, country with dietary habits that are good or bad compared to other countries, but you don't know that when you start. Where the problem arises with research is you choose a trial for a reason. People set up a trial because they believe it's worth investigating in the context of that country for a particular purpose when they reduce the variables, they cut out, say, the smokers, or they cut out the overweight, or they cut out the whatever it is to get homogeneity of the research group. That improves the likelihood of an outcome of the trial and it diminishes the likelihood that it's applicable to anybody who we see walking off the street in our practices. So although great quality evidence, it's great quality evidence only for those who fulfill the criteria, the selection and the exclusion criteria of the trial, and that limits its applicability. So it may be great evidence, but it's it's evidence that's almost best used in hospitals who can find the people mm. who match the trial.
0: Mm, that's right. So let's delve into a few of these late-breaking news, and some of them are indeed quite old. Why don't we start off with an older one? Mm. The carrot trial (laughs) and the ATBC, the alpha-tocopherol beta-carotene cancer prevention trial. Mm. And I'll just point out that's atbcstudy.cancer.gov forward slash, if you wanted to look that up. But why did beta-carotene get such a bad rap?
1: Beta-carotene got a bad rap, as it turns out, in smokers and the trials that did not have the analyses of smokers in particular, beta-carotene beta- gets a good rap. This is the problem with studies. When you are looking for anything from lung cancer progression to polyp prevention, if you have a factor in there which is the primary driver of disease, like smoking, then the addition of a supplement on top of a bad habit is not going to change that bad habit into a good habit. It's mythology of medicine that we have magic pills that allow you to destroy your health with some process, you know, overeating carbs, smoking, um, alcohol use. And we have the magic pill on the other side, which is going to get you out of it. And so it's highly unlikely that beta-carotene, as a molecule in nature, was ever going to be up against cigarette smoking, Cigarette smoking has a pro-proliferative effect. Beta-carotene can act as a growth factor in those circumstances, and it would be perfectly reasonable to assume that beta-carotene could affect the rapid progression of something like that in a smoker. But the message should never be, therefore don't give beta-carotene. We have other trials which show positive effects, or at the very least neutral effects on uh, cancer and cancer progression, in people who don't smoke. And so the first job of a doctor or or practitioner is don't smoke. Don't smoke and don't smoke. That's the first three messages. The next message may be, and if you are going to smoke, don't take beta carotene. The evidence is building that Mm. that is not good for a person who's got polyp development in the gut or who has got uh, risks of lung cancer or, indeed, any evidence of early lung cancer. Can I also ask the question, though,
0: if you were a practitioner, would you ever use a single... Quote unquote antioxidant, which I question that term, would you ever use a single antioxidant in
1: something as complex as cancer? Two questions. I'll take part B first. <laughs> um, would we ever use an antioxidant? No, one antioxidant is simply a means of transferring electrons. Nutritional in medicine. Vitro. In vitro, right? But nutritional medicine is not the administration of one item at a time. The medical model of life is let's test a molecule. Let's invent a molecule as the normal first step. Mm -hmm. See if it does what it's meant to do, then do safety trials on it. Nature already did the invention of molecules and the safety trials. By that, I mean those who didn't do well with beta-carotene from their diet ain't here. They are not procreating. They went long ago. So we and nature are a kind of symbiotic relationship. A lot of these molecules are good for what we need to use them for. And administered as if they were drugs is not a, not necessarily a way that we would um, even consider. Now, there is one aspect of nutritional medicine. And nutritional medicine is, can you use a safer molecule in place of a drug? So something in place of an antidepressant. Could we use, say, n acetyl cysteine in place of an antidepressant? And the answer may be, Yes or no. The evidence seems to build that there might be something to that, but it's not the nature of nutritional medicine to take a molecule and make it your hero. So let's let's go further on that question about never giving
0: um, a single antioxidant alone because that's how nature never intended. Well, never, nature never intended tablets of supplements as well. That's true. And yet there is a, su- a case for that in those people that might not have the intake, those people that might be using up that nutrient for yes. more than other people, or those people that not, might not be able to metabolize that
1: nutrient yes. as well as other people. Yeah, you have, I, I think there's got to be a distinction between nutrition and nutritional medicine. And the distinction for me is you build nutrition first. Even Absolutely. given that nutrition, there are people who fall off an edge because of biochemical individuality differences, malabsorption. One big issue for most of us is m- maybe three quarters of my patients have gut problems. What goes in their mouth does not end up in their bloodstream. How do I know that? I measure it routinely. B12 is the classic where they're eating meat and they've got B12 levels of 115, 118, which is not sufficient even for vegans. What's happening along the way is what goes in their mouth and their diet is right. Then we have a reason to intervene. We have an ability to say, your path in nature is downhill in an irrevocable way, we can do something to turn that around, at least with that nutrient. When it comes to absorption and nutrition, we can do something to the gut generally with microbial management, with the the type of diet that we put a person on to start to get them to absorb the molecules that they need more rapidly or better. So we, we have a job to do, which is to improve nutrition. We have a second job to do, which is to decide which individual has specific needs that we may be able to make a positive impact on. You know I'm not a great fan of racing in with one thing without asking the deeper question of why is this person in this state? A good example being low B12, let's give B12 shots. The B12 is fixed, what's the next thing to fall over? Even N acetylcysteine, sometimes all you do is you put the NAC in and you see the homocysteine levels rising and rising and rising. Something else is wrong with Mm. that whole cycling Mm. system and they're not getting what you want them to get. So I do think the science of nutritional medicine is a very worthwhile approach. In my view, that means using molecules that are found in nature or molecules of life, not invented new ones, but ones that the body is capable of metabolizing and managing, delivering that in dosages sufficient for the body to be able to function and get back to normal for that individual in front of you. That's personalized medicine. That and a, is
0: individual a, medicine. And I think a caveat here is those people that are properly trained in such... Um, Look, I remember when I did my nursing training, I used to poo-poo this like
1: you wouldn't believe. So did I. Um, I didn't do nursing (laughs) training, but as a doctor, I was obliged to poo-poo this. if I didn't get through medicine if I didn't. Yeah.
0: Um, And yet many years later, I I still remember I had to go cap in hand to a person I used to absolutely relegate, um, you know, their calling of natural medicine. Mm. And I had to say, I'm so sorry for how arrogant I was notwithstanding that we still have to be aware, uh, we still have to be sceptical of some claims and things like that, and we have to check them out themselves.
1: Sure. Um, That scepticism is the hallmark of science, and science is not randomised controlled trials. Coming back to what I said before, RCTs inform something of what a process does in a particular group for a clinician to take and say, where do I apply it? How do I apply that? And is it even relevant to me? So when we do science... Science at the coalface is you do something to a person, you watch the outcomes, and you are documented carefully. And we forget that. You know, Linus Pauling said this, of all the scientists, of all the science professions, doctors are the ones where they pay least attention to the science. We believe it comes from on high from a journal. We don't do the science. We don't collect our data. We don't review it. We don't have analysis of it. Yet we're in the youngest and most important of the sciences, arguably. The medical profession and yeah. healthcare it defines what goes on for our next generations. So I, I am passionate in my belief that practitioners should be documenting what they do, should gather that evidence, and that the stories that are told by patients are, in fact, the anecdotes do build to a story that we as a group can come together and discuss and do great science. And it can be a very challenging thing indeed for any practitioner to
0: gather that data along the way and then do a clinical audit on themselves. Don't I know it?
1: <laughs> Don't I know it? Well, you know, the passionate beliefs of a young practitioner is you see people, they people keep on coming back to you, you see them getting better, and you say, I'm fixing 75% of the people I see. Except for the 75% who didn't come back, (laughs) and we don't don't count those in our numbers. So we all like to believe we do good. The randomised controlled trial concept arose in the last century when maths was difficult, where data acquisition was difficult. Old doctors wrote on pieces of paper that went in filing cabinets and never saw the light of day and we move to a new time now we've moved to a time where we capture our information what we need is the ability to bring together say nutritional medicine practitioners say where what's your black box what's your outcomes and we can do that bayesian statistics is a lot better than the fisherian the old p equals p greater than less than 0.05 it really shouldn't apply any longer it should be We have a starting hypothesis that fish oils do you good in cardiovascular disease. How do we add information to that to change that ratio around a little bit, build confidence or reduce confidence? And I think that's the future of what happens with our computers and our science from now on. We contribute, and to the extent to which we contribute, we influence the science. And for those people that
0: might uh, be caught up on the importance of randomised control trials, please look at Smith and Pell. Um, I can't remember the exact title, but it's so basically it got to George do. With, pill it's basically got to do with um, parachute jumping, a randomized oh, yes. control trial of parachute jumps, and uh, upon gravitational challenge. Uh, and it was published in British Medical Journal two thousand yes, so and three. So Smith Pill, Jill Pill, I think is it one of the a authors. It
1: was the means of eliminating the strong evidence-based medicine yes. supporters in a crossover trial, I believe. And my my challenge here is, I dare you to go into the placebo Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but remember, they proposed a crossover trial in which those, you know, each each of the pro-EVM <laughs> versions went into the other branch of the trial for the second part. So it was the that, elimination. That would of have been a program. washout. Yes, that was. <laughs> the the washout would have been good. But it is it is difficult when something becomes so entrenched. Strong evidence equals X and a research community, which is a trillion dollar research community over the planet, keeps on wanting to promulgate that. We've got to ask step back at some point and say, what is the use of this? Why would you do a beta-carotene trial in finished smokers when that's not the question that is pressing on the world to know an answer about. What we have is the killers of obesity, cardiovascular disease, degenerative changes of the brain, um, cancer. There are really important questions to ask on the broad basis, and the specifics of the very potent trials don't serve to answer that very well. They often serve to confuse that question instead.
0: So just wrapping up the beta-carotene argument, Mm. uh, there's a nice little review, uh, dietary supplementary, Use and Prostate Cancer Risk in the Carotene and Retinol Efficiency Trial. That's the carrot trial. The author is Neuhauser, N-E-U-H-O-U-S-E-R, in Cancer Epidemiology Biomarkers and Prevention in 2009. It's a really nice little review there. So Mark, now onto something that you mentioned before regarding apples, onto the FODMAP diet. And I'd like to make a shout out here to Sue Shepherd, who sort of formulated this diet. And I think people have bastardized the diet to their own means, the no FODMAP diet, uh, whereas initially it was always kind of like the low salicylate diet. It's the low FODMAP diet down to a handleable level. But a recent paper talks about the FODMAP diet is no better than the normal high fiber diet when treating IBS. Yeah, can you take us through this? Because I think one of the, thing, the, the issues with irritable bowel syndrome, it's the highly emotionally charged disorder, correct?
1: Yeah. When, when, when you hear the word irritable bowel syndrome, from my years in the 1970s, remember, I go back quite a way, IBS was code for a little bit anxious, a little bit crazy, probably a woman. And Give them was, Valium. Hmm. Well, that was the actual line was give Valium to the mother of a child with asthma, giving them Valium. Valium was vitamin V for all of us who knew those early years. Vitamin V was given. Um, I, I can still remember that the benzodiazepine receptor. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so we yeah. had a deficiency of benzodiazepines. Yeah, no, we did anyway. We did. We we have a whole history of that in uh, in science, but the the teaching was you only needed to get the psychology right. And it was trivialised, and as it became obvious that irritable bowel syndrome is in fact a, C- a very important um, limiter of people's quality of life. It's painful, you get bloating, wind, pain, constipation and or diarrhoea, and it is an unanswered question of medicine that ha- that the orthodox gastroenterologists have honed in on progressively over a few years. What got me about this study is, FODMAP diet does for many people a fantastic job. Absolutely. And going on to a FODMAP diet is a revelation to people as well. Going on to eating nothing does a fantastic job. If you take the load off the gastrointestinal tract generally, you can do a fantastic job as well. Similarly, if you are not worried about what is going on in my gut, it's always a useful thing to not have to worry about it. So a lot of people come and want to make sure they have their colonoscopies, their endoscopies, I mean, and they have stool tests for blood. And as long as nothing is found there, some people say, oh, that's okay. And there is an improvement in symptoms the majority though, they go on exactly the same way as they did before. So the FODMAP is a simple intervention. You can hand a sheet of paper to them and most people will do okay on it. Is it a sustainable diet? Probably not. You probably want to go and open up that diet a bit. People tend to become afraid of many of the fruits Mm. and vegetables. They tend to want to stick away from those types of things. And so it's been a little pet thing of mine for years. We have one obligation is to get people off the foods that are bad for them. And the other obligation is to get them back onto all the foods in their full variety and joy that is good for them. My problem in my practice, because I see a lot of people from other practitioners, is they become food phobic. They won't eat anything. They will never cross their boundary because they remember how bad they felt with their IBS on the other side of it. And i unwilling to give an inch. And therein lies the problem. If you don't give an inch, if you really are food phobic... You don't enjoy your food. You don't sit down with the family and eat it. You are making special preparations. Label reading becomes the only thing that you can do in life. So the general advice um, has always been in the past, we'll get over it from gastroenterologists. But I was rather pleased on this particular study, the traditional IBS diet, um, has changed over the years. The National Institute for Health and Care Excellence the British Dietetic Association eat regularly, three meals a day, three snacks a day, never too much, never too little, never be hungry, never too full, eat in peace and quiet, chew thoroughly, reduce intake of fatty or spicy foods, coffee, alcohol, onions, cabbage and beans, avoid soft drink and carbonated beverages, chewing gum and sweeteners that end with OL, the <laughs> polyol. so anything ending in OL, uh, yeah. evil. Yeah. Uh, and eat fibres but distribute the intake evenly during the day. That's more than used to be said for anyone with IBS. And what this study tells us is FODMAPs and that diet that is uh, to- is now promulgated by the gastroenterologists, both equally good, neither of them particularly better, but a huge amount of crossover between traditional vice- advice and a FODMAP diet. So while I think it's great to get people on it, Our job then is to find the foods that make life interesting, enjoyable, that make cooking easy to do, and don't complicate a person's food relationships too much. Mm. And I think this answers that question, that yes, you can start up with a really good hit with a FODMAP diet or with the IBS type uh, approach of the gastroenterologist, and then move on. What are the foods that you introduce back? When the gut microbes are back in order, the fermentable agents are not the problem that they are when you start. And so we build our fermentable agents by providing the polyols and the sugars and the and the disaccharides, but in the end, a healthy gut can have that variety as long as it is temporary in season and you move on through those foods to over time. So, I'm a fan of getting people back to eating the foods they love, and restricting only the foods that they really don't need to have. I'm I'm a big fan these days of people should not have gluten of wheat, rye, and barley at the very least unless they know that they can manage that gluten. And I'm surprised at how many of my patients, the high proportion, really can't manage gluten and you don't need to be too precious beyond that point. So
0: just regarding that that point on the FODMAP diet about handle what you can and what you can't, mm-hmm. talk to me about your experience that you've had with stewed Apple. I remember you learnt this from Mike Ash, who used yeah. to use a particular um, species, a particular variety of of apple, and forgive me, I can't for the life remember it. It at, translates at to Granny Smith, medium sized Granny yeah, Smith. Yeah, we, we don't for get that us. apple, that English yeah. apple over here, that's for sure. So, but he used that, and the reason behind it was because it was in, increasing interleukin ten, correct?
1: Uh, indirectly, the the reason for the stewed apple was to release the raffinose and to you know break down the pectins and to provide a particular method of preparation that allowed that food to encourage normal growth of uh, bacteria in the gut. The upside of it is most people love the taste of a bit of cinnamon on stewed apple. It's a thing that's a pleasure for them to do. they has got it right. That's good for them. Yeah, well, they got it right even with cabbage, but the cabbage <laughs> yeah, <true. laughs> has its own little particular problems <laughs> that may be associated with it for Australians. But it, it transformed a bit of the discussion in my practice, which is what I love most. People would say, In fact, first go back, after I listened to the lectures and I got the paper from Michael about the preparation of the stewed apple, I felt embarrassed. I felt, I am a technical person. I do not want to be giving this thing of stewed apples could do that much good for you. What I didn't understand is there's a meta layer to this, that people preparing stewed apples means they're in the kitchen. They're looking at a recipe. They're putting things in a pot. They're preparing for the week ahead, and they're treating it as though it's important for their health. The extras that came with it were the family got into stewed apple. They they sat down and ate together and it became a part of the story. And the story got them back into the kitchen and the kitchen gets them back into cooking. And getting people who are busy to take time every day. It's like that one, if you've got no time to cook... Just spend more time cooking. You you have to do it a little <laughs> bit like meditation. What you're doing wrong is not spending <laughs> <Practice>. <laughs> the time. And it's, it's incredibly important to family's health, not just the mm. individual's. One member of a family who benefits greatly from it, other members of that family are likely to find sufficient and significant benefits to want to go about that. What surprised me is the compliance then with the probiotics, with the saccharomyces, with the um, living foods, that once people are interested in food again, it is like gardening. Once you get into it, it's a a magical world of preparation of food being good for health rather than pill being good for health. And so it was a much, much easier call to then say, and your ultrabiotic, and your saccharomyces, the SP-fluoractive, these type of things keep on promoting the changes of gut immunology that are going to result in better absorption and nutrition. Now, now we're seeing these diets proposed for HIV-positive people. Now we've got the HIV progression being related to gut microbiome and gut leakiness. And managing that progression, it now makes sense of why, what was the best predictor of bad outcomes with HIV? Low glutathione levels. Where does the glutathione get chewed up? Well, inflammatory processes Mm. in the gut and Mm. the liver having a secondary job as well as drug metabolism was the obvious area to think of. Now we're saying even in diseases as so-called hard as HIV, you can get massive improvements in quality of life by focusing on the gut microbes. They do a lot for basic immunology and health and controlling inflammation there is the job of all of us, I think. As doctors, if we get good gut control and good inflammation control, you have a lot of happy patients, a lot of happy people.
0: Talking about the gut. <laughs> yes. The gut-brain interface. Uh, there's some recent papers and, and write-ups that have come out come out about antidepressants harming kids and hidden harms of antidepressants in general populations. What about this link, though, with the gut micro- microbiome? Can we improve the way that antidepressants work
1: by looking at our gut? I don't think there's any doubt about it. Well, I mean, at a clinical level, I, I think this is the lay-down of, um of psychiatry and psychology. Depression is poorly managed by antidepressants especially in youth, especially in youth, going for antidepressants, going for antipsychotics, going for the types of single molecular changes that we see in youngsters is always a bad idea compared to the alternative, which is getting diet and gut right. I know from very personal experience how hard it is to get teenagers to eat, how hard it is to get them to not consider that a bun from Woolworths is full nutrition, Mm. especially if washed down with a Coke. So I I have very personal experience in this, and I know the impact it can have on nutrition, and the impact that can have on the brain. The brain of a developing adolescent or child is just—it's like Star Trek. It's a nuclear reactor. It's a bomb ready to go off at any time. And you steal nutrients away, with high likelihood that things will collapse in one direction or another. Getting nutrition right. This comes up at the MIND conference every year. Getting nutrition right is the number one, number two, and number Absolutely. three thing to do. Yeah. And after that, we have methods of int- of intervention with single nutrients that make big differences. There are the kids that get the vitamin B12 shot, all the zinc supplementation and the B6 with the pyrrole problems, and you see them transformed in a very short period of time. So I am a, a fanatical believer that you try everything you can with the diet because the outcomes of the drug therapies, short term may be reasonable, but in the long term are never reasonable in my view. And I'll, I'll give a short
0: shout out here again to uh, Associate Professor Felice Jacker, who's done some incredible work on diet and psychiatry, both in hyperactivity and behavioral disorders, plus but also on flattened effect uh, and other mood disorders um, down in Victoria.
1: She's done incredible work. So well done. It, it, it does disturb me though. I go now to the GP lectures and the psychiatrists are there going 2.6 grams of N-acetylcysteine per day is the therapeutic dose. The therapeutic dose for what is the (laughs) obvious question. Yes, it's a precursor of glutathione. Yes, it changes the sulfation cycles. It does a whole lot of things, but it is not an alternative to an antidepressant. It's not a tricyclic alternative, nor are fish oils. You know, the fish oils get a a bit of a hit here, and then the, the health report drags them back down again. They're a an important part of a balanced diet that a lot of youth lose very very quickly. Their tendency to go for the omega six and the grain fed cattle and the and the meats from those sources, and not to put too fine a point on it, the salads that are, still have the glyphosate residues in there mm. that affect their gut microbes. Mm. So our job as parents, in a sense, is to keep on the path of trying to pass pass food in front of them. The one advantage we have is every adolescent will eat. They can't starve to death. And so if the only thing, their laziness usually exceeds their ability to resist food. And so they're not going to make anything. They're not going to walk up to McDonald's. If food is put in front of them, we can still control a bit of that with fresh organic foods in season. Getting kids to love food early on, I think I miss my opportunity sometimes. That age is two, three, four, five and six. I think that's critical to the learning of a person about what the importance of nutrition oh, is. Absolutely. And I am really pleased these days parents are paying a lot of attention to microbiomes. They want vaginal births not because of convenience or anything. They want them because the child gets a better start to life. Mothers intuitively have known that for a long time and obstetricians intuitively have felt that golf or whatever their other <laughs> commitments are are somewhat more important than the exact timing of birth. It's so always golf. <laughs> well, it, it's a, a common thing. Doctors get old enough and rich enough, they generally go to golf rather than tennis or anything like that. But I, I mean, that's that's the the kind of anecdotal thing. The truth is medicine likes to control people's lives. It likes to think that we have advanced beyond that brute stage of herbs and diet, and that we have medicine and molecules that have been invented that are very smart. It's took me 30 years to realise those smart molecules have their limitations. They have a use-by date which is very, very rapid in many people. And so while we've invented molecules that work to do a job, what we've not invented is the molecules that are sustainable over a lifetime. And i watched the people, the teenagers who did well on the antidepressants early on within two years doing terribly, and no one's got a plan B. There's no other answer behind it. So I I think... Being aware of the downside of antidepressants, they're not that potent to begin with. The downsides in the long term are significant. We should be paying more attention to that. And I suspect antidepressants will go the way of benzodiazepines in the future, that they were the miracle drugs, and they're not so miraculous when the longer term effects are seen.
0: That ties into a very recent paper published uh, espousing that uh, even in severe depression, I think it was, that antidepressants only worked as well as cognitive behavior therapy a term which i know you're not a fan of i'm not a fan of it i (laughs) I
1: know that many people regard it as the only (laughs) proven treatment but cognitive behavioral therapy works for geeky people who like a rational explanation to life the people who I see who are more artistic and more creative, they see through CBT in a second. CBT is a kind of trick that you can get the and, rational mind and a lot focus of paperwork. On. Yeah, <laughs> and it and it fits our models. And yes, there's a there's evidence that it does, but it does benefit some of my patients. I don't want to pretend otherwise. And you prefer the term mindfulness? Yes, which but, incorporates yes, and the mindfulness or. Well, mindfulness itself has become one of those hurrah terms. And now I'm starting, you know, mindfulness-based therapies for CEOs to rape the world and to, you know, steal all the resources from it. So now you have large corporations who are I know what I'm doing, nasty. so it's okay. Yes. I am mindful of the degree of destruction that I am imparting on the world, and I'm okay with Not that. Not espousing that. Yes. <laughs> but it, it, is, it is spreading out into that world of, hey, if you're mindful, mm, anything's it's allowable. Yeah. And you can go on with that. Mindfulness at a deep level changes people profoundly. That ability to allow for the world to be around you, to allow for things to go past, it's especially useful when symptoms are destroying a person's life because the focus is on those symptoms. And separating the focus from the symptoms and saying, we'll work to get you better, but in the meantime, here's a process that allows you to reduce your symptoms with no drug therapy whatsoever. And I think that's a a very powerful part of mindfulness, meditation, yoga as a part of a movement therapy and breath. They're incredibly important as well. We've just got started going. My wife is a yoga therapist. And in our practice now, introducing that, the joy of hearing healthy kids who've just been born vaginally in the next room not born in the next room, but in the next room singing songs and having the joy of mothers Gee, and young, that healthy babies well. <laughs> around. Um, the mothers do most of the singing early on, but the kids just cackle. Yeah, And the cackling of a young baby, a healthy young oh. baby with healthy mothers who are communing together, yeah. it lightens the entire practice experience. It, it sounds like it can't be that much fun having kids there, but kids who are thriving in life, Just give a tickle to whatever part of the nervous system that we have that says, yeah, that's the future. And, you know, we often attribute
0: mindfulness and yoga and all of these sort of wonderful, nice relaxation therapies to adult things. But kids benefit from these immensely, don't they?
1: They do. They do. And they take it on and they lead the way. Even the adolescents, the one period of life which is, I think, the most stressful is the high school certificate years. And the people, the kids who figured out that yoga mindfulness and meditation breath uh, work, that's ways of practically engaging in life that is highly stressful and still having your escape, your parachute in the sense, hiking back a bit. That parachute is, yes, I'll go into this, but I have my own secret way of getting through this. I have my own way of breathing again. The simplest answer of Breathe, keep your feet on the ground. In exams, it makes a big difference. Mm. When you separate from your body and the brain goes, hey, well, it's very nice to give techniques that within seconds can reground a person and allow a person to take control and be back in comfortable in their own skin, is how I see it over and, and over.
0: And it's amazing what you say then about breathing, because one of, to me, one of the most common symptoms that I've heard from chronic fatigue patients is the sigh. They almost gasp yes. for air. They don't breathe. And then they, it's
1: almost like an apnea. It actually is a type of apnea. Many years ago, we had a hospital unit in Manly, and we had chronic fatigue syndrome patients in there. We did the breathing monitoring at night, and these people, on an official basis, suffered a type of sleep apnea. But it was not obstructive sleep apnea. This was a type of failing to breathe for up to 40 seconds and then a catch-up breathing on the other side. When we did the area under the curve, their oxygen exchange over the night was about 70% of what you'd normally have. Not chain-stokes breathing? Nothing like that. It was just simply, it's almost like the brain forgets to breathe for a period of time. What we were told on the pattern of it is it's just like cot-death babies, except cot-death babies don't have the escape mechanism on the other side. And so there was hypopnea, which is the failure of fuel delivery. They woke up tired in the morning and it was entirely explainable by the under-breathing that happened over the night. You can't easily catch up that way. Retraining breathing is not a thing that we ever expect to have to do. It's on autopilot. You know, in the midbrain there, it just is on automatic. And if there are changes to a person's ability to pay attention to that, then doing something about breathing makes a significant difference to that person's fatigability and the ability to wake up refreshed. That's something that's really important. They wake up tired every morning and wonder why. I I know this would be fraught with
0: issues of um, informed consent and long-term issues with being stationary and all that sort of thing. But is any, have any researchers ever investigated knocking out Let's say, let's say the word, anesthetizing chronic fatigue patients and maybe uh, controlling their oxygen intake. You know, it, that sort of, you know, being on the operating table without an operation.
1: Yeah, I, a, I think we should give you the opportunity <laughs> to do such a trial. No, uh, Frankenstein. I, I, yes, there have been people who tried knockout therapies. Deep sleep therapy was one have. of those. Yes, and uh, Chelmsford was the outcome and there were a bunch of deaths and suicides of the doctors. It wasn't a great experience to take right. over a person uh, anesthetized state. It just mm. didn't work out well. Possession. I, yes. I, I do think that we have people with hyper-responsive nervous systems that go into an almost hibernating state mm. overnight mm. and lower their metabolic rate and wonder why they're feeling tired. And we focus on thyroid and adrenals and we think of all the, uh, those aspects of the endocrine system as failing these people without understanding that this is the body plonking itself into that response in response to something 600. deeper. Mm. And that that um, decision to go down to a lower metabolic rate, we can do something about. You know, we give, as doctors, thyroid hormones. We, we do stuff to try and stimulate the body. Provigil is a drug that is used regularly. Is it a good idea? Short term, people say, well, that feels better. Yeah. Long term, they don't feel better because all they've done, all we've really done is accelerated the disease state yeah. as well as the health state. Yeah. And yeah. so the deeper understanding I think is you get the basics right of sleep, diet, nutrition. You make sure that what gets into the mouth actually gets into the body. You don't just assume that everything is absorbed, focusing on the gut, focusing on sleep, focusing on eating and making our own food. That all pro- that forms the foundation of a successful, healthy life. It doesn't make them well, and that's where the practitioner comes in for the very specific advice. But I am still stunned at how many of us move straight to the magical treatment without ever paying attention to the foundations of what we would regard as good health. We're time pressured, even in integrative medicine, you've got to get to the end of the story and do something. And that's, you know, this, for example, is why I felt so bad about uh, Mike Ash's thing, if all I'm saying is eat stewed apple, that's not a very good no, use of time. That's right. Yeah. But if I'm saying it's a foundation before we can do much of the other work, then it's a fabulous use of time because it's self-perpetuating, low cost, and it becomes part of the family story. And I think that's the that's the basis of a good practitioner building into that family story. Just
0: a little. Uh, wrap up of the apple story i Mm. looked up uh the ibsgroup.org forums uh, on apples and it was just really interesting about you know one um one member talking about i don't know if it's voodoo or not but i can eat peeled cooked microwaved baked in a real oven or even boiled apples with no problem raw apples with or without skin set off my diarrhea yeah Um, very interesting sort of thing. Yeah,
1: and this comes back to FODMAP, and it comes back to what are we doing with the apples? How do we prepare them? We are not raw apple eaters traditionally. You know, apples are a fruit that are a fairly short time in season. And so our diets were never based on those. Stewed apples is a whole different issue. The release of the particular sugars, the breakdown of the pectins, the ability to have something in a digestible form, which is, anticipated by the microorganisms that we would ideally like to build in the gut and then change our interleukins and change the uh, permeability of the gut. If I had something that was magic, there is you know a drug around uh, that was that is still called larazaztide which is is simply um, a long string of amino acids, eight amino acids. It does something to seal up a leaky gut, the intracellular uh, the intercellular uh, bonds. However, it's ridiculously expensive. And if the job can be done by eating rather than a ridiculously expensive drug, then I would be all for the eating. But there may be in the future, this is what I'm hoping that Alessio Fasano and Dave Perlmutter will be able to talk to us about, there is an opportunity to do something that might just be able to close some of those gates off so that we can get people back onto the food that they need to recover and heal. It's really difficult just to push people with a very leaky gut onto something which is going to get through that gut wall and then trigger the liver. I watch this with the liver function test changes all the time. I get people to start foods, and I actually watch the ALT and AST vary around. People pick it up very quickly. They feel bad, and their liver function tests go off with particular foods, and they should never do that. They should never be getting through the gut wall to the liver in the first place. Just a little point for our listeners. tide is
0: sometimes turned... Anti zonulin, yes, and uh, it's now being investigated for active celiac disease. Yes,
1: and and I think it has been approved for for trials. But what happened as soon as that approval became available, it became unavailable, high cost, and it was you know yet another one an octopeptide, just putting eight amino acids together should not be you know a ridiculously expensive thing to do. That'll definitely be a topic we'll have to investigate with
0: uh, Dr Alessio Fasano at the symposium.
1: I know. I, I think that he's had a fair bit to do with the I research on that. I would think so. so I, I, <laughs> I I'm, think I'm so. really looking forward to, is there a short-term answer we could give that will get you over the hump that will allow the foods to be able to be reintroduced and do a bit of the repair? Band-Aids are a good idea, <laughs> even though they're not a good idea for 30 years. But To me, this is one of the the sad
0: things about medical politics is, unfortunately, a GP in, in general practice... to doesn't have time to uncover the root causes of of the mal- maladies presenting that they only have time for symptom coverage, and this is due in part for the intrinsic link between our health outcome and financial burden. So, you know, to the point where a doctor who wishes to investigate that the un- the the f- uh, poor foundations of why somebody presents with a chronic disease actually gets. Uh, chased by the medical authorities about over-servicing. And so service, uh, uh, appropriate service is
1: really due to a certain short amount of time. Yeah. I have some experience in this. As you possibly remember, over 30 years, I think 11 I do referrals for spending too long with patients. And then you're on the good side and you're on the bad side. I go back a step. Medical education, people misunderstand this. It's, we are trained in disease recognition and the appropriate treatment of the disease. We're not Hippocratic medicine anymore. We take a Hippocratic oath, but there is no pretense any longer that we're after ultimate causes. We're after proximate causes and doable things, fixable things. And so there is always a need for a smash repairer because smashes happen. Mm. And I do not want to get caught without doctors where, you know, if I get caught in a car accident or if something terrible happens, the magic of medicine is its ability to rapidly intervene, do the short-term stuff and get it right. Mm. What it misses is that medicine is not, in my view, a healthcare profession. It's a disease care profession. We pay a lot to keep disease at bay. We pay very little to prevent disease from occurring. And I th- I personally believe that this will require a rethink of healthcare education. Doctors, naturopaths, everybody needs to have the same foundation of a knowledge of the tradition of healthcare, a knowledge of the traditions of healing from different cultures, an awareness of pharmacology, all the way up to the genetic modification. And then they should diverge in their own particular ways, those who take the path of functional medicine and ultimate causes have to spend more time with the person in order to understand the mechanisms of disease. But they should work hand in hand with doctors who say, and I can do something to take away the symptoms of this disease. So I don't see it as a doctor's job. I'm starting to understand that, that a time-poor doctor who tries to be a naturopath, does it really mm, badly. badly. And what happens then is we always revert to form. We always revert eventually back to the drugs because we expect people to get better in a 48 hours, 72 hours, 96 hours. Yeah. That's our time frame. We're impatient, goal-oriented, and we like tricks that work really obviously. Working with a person to reestablish health and life and sleep and diet takes time, but is more profoundly going to impact that person's health than all the pills that a doctor can prescribe. So I think the future is a common concept of healthcare and healthcare education, where the practitioners of prevention, functional medicine, herbalism, traditions around the world work hand in hand with the doctors who catch the people falling off that edge And doctors who do their job properly are magical. They do a really good job of stopping the disasters happening. Where I see a problem with GPs is we become statin prescribers. That's our major trick for prevention is do statins and vaccinate. And is there anything else? No, that's about it. How many doctors spend the time? What's your sleep like? Oh, we refer people off to a sleep physiologist, a sports physiologist, and then we lose interest in that entirely. I would say that doctors are not even the person... To coordinate that whole process, the coordinator of a health and life process should be a person who uses a doctor for the treatment of the diseases where the doctor is appropriate and allocates them to the doctor rather than the doctor automatically seeing. I I heard it yesterday, 85% of Australians see the doctor at least yearly. Yeah. That should be nothing like that. If like the Chinese
0: model, where the, what is it, the, 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 the village practitioner gets
1: paid when they're well, not yes. when they're sick. The yeah. concept, well, even that doesn't work because the training of a doctor is still the training of a doctor. How do you recognise a disease? What are the symptoms and signs? What's the intervention? That still is very important training to have. I'm not decrying that one bit. But where we stepped out was we said, and we are therefore healthcare practitioners Whereas health is invisible yeah, to us. Look yeah. at doctors. We are not a healthy group of people. We are trying to become that, but that doesn't actually add up to anything. Medicine, every time it's tried to pay for prevention and gone to doctors, all it does is break the bank. Doctors just prescribe more statins, give more vaccines, and they say, we have done prevention. So the, the step aside here is the time taken to understand a family it may be a whole new profession. There may be a room for a coordinator of health care who sees doctors as one end of that spectrum for disease care that's efficient and appropriate? Who sees dietary advice from nutritional uh, practitioners and um, maybe advice from herbalists as a step before you get to serious disease states? That looks at the continuum of healthcare and that healthcare as an educational program has a continuum with respect of each of the practitioners for each of the other groups. And if we could broaden that church so that healthcare became a meaningful term again. Then a healthcare system could actually mean something. Every single healthcare health minister appreciates that they have nothing to do with health; they have to do with disease. You said two words of note: minister and church. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> hmm. Well, it is the church of medicine, and, and we, you know, we all want to believe that doctors will be there to fix us up. And when doctors say at the end of life there's nothing we can do, we're somewhat disappointed, but think, well, we couldn't have done any better. And the fact is, we could have. If we had managed prevention, nutrition, lifestyle, diet, if we'd managed to do that early on in life and get people used to that early on, we could do a much, much better job than waiting for people to present to their doctor.
0: On a little bit of a different tack now, vitamin D was the hero vitamin two, three, four, five years ago, um, resulting in millions of wasted healthcare dollars spent on vitamin D testing. I think it was 117 million. And each test is around about $40. So that's how many tests. I think in one paper by Kelly Belinsky, um, one patient was tested 79 times. I think it was something like that, 79 times. Who does that? But regardless of that, since 2014 November, vitamin D testing has been taken off unless you're in a certain risk group. So it's not allowed to be performed um, routinely. Routinely, thank you. And with a saving in the first year of some $34 million. Yes. Moving on to vitamin D's actions, though, we know that many people are, have insufficient levels of vitamin D. I think it was 34 or 43, forgive me, 43% of women in southeast Queensland, the sunny, sunny state, had insufficient levels of vitamin D. That was below 50 nanomoles per litre. That percentage goes throughout the eastern seaboard and raises the further south you go into Melbourne and Tasmania was huge. I think it was like 90% or 70%, something like that. The problem is that the intervention trials for vitamin D, once you have a condition, haven't really stacked up. And indeed, sometimes they give us or they throw us a curly one, like an adverse event. An interesting paper was that vitamin D increases falls. Can you explain
1: this? I can explain it, but it, it again has the medicalization of vitamin D as the background. So one, one thing I want to pre- preface this with is sunlight works to make people healthier. Right? One thing sunlight does is produce vitamin D3 from pro D3 in the skin. What we measure is hydroxylated, the 25-hydroxy vitamin D, which requires not only that production or the tablet that you take, but it requires the liver to hydroxylate it. A lot of the people that we see who are chronically unwell don't have good liver hydroxylation processes. And so we have this paradox that we're measuring D3, 25 hydroxy vitamin D3, 25-hydroxy, and we give 5,000 or 2,000 or 10,000, and the 25-hydroxy just refuses to go up. In fact, sometimes you see altered liver function tests in response to that, the liver almost under too much of a load from too much delivery of the vitamin D3. So sunlight has self-regulatory mechanisms. Going out in the sun is photosynthesizing in a whole different way. You get vitamin D and you get the upside of sunlight on the central nervous system and you get the value of sunlight in depression management and you get the value of sunlight in many different ways. So if there is a natural form of vitamin D, A, it's not a vitamin because we make it, Um, B, The form of vitamin D comes with other things built Mm -hmm. into that package called sunlight. The fear of sunlight, I think, became a national problem. That all we heard was the terrible outcomes of melanoma and skin cancer, kind of all grumbled up together, meant that we should all be fanatical about keeping our children out of the sun at every opportunity. And it got to the ridiculous step uh, that midwinter, in the rain, parents were still trying to get people out of exposure to light, any light whatsoever. So we deal with that in a very poor way, which is let's replace it with a vitamin D3. Um, And the vitamin D3 does one single simple bit of what sunlight can do. It's important not to forget about it because when the vitamin D3 goes down to those kind of low levels, we're anticipating that the 1,25 dihydroxy vitamin D, the active form of it, would also be going down. I have measured many, many people for that 1,25. It's a difficult thing to measure, but very frequently the people who have got the low 25-hydroxy measured on the blood test have perfectly good or even high levels of the 1,25-dihydroxy. So it is a far, far more complicated thing than we have anticipated. We just said low measured levels, supplement with something, I note there's a new position paper put out on vitamin D and sunlight and involving the the Cancer Council of Mm. uh, New South Wales and many other contributors, the uh, bone people and the metabolic people, everyone getting together. And now emerging slowly from that is the rational, let's get back to you having sunlight in these hours of the day. Just avoid the UV exposure over three and so there's now apps to say, get out in the sun during the times that this little app tells you that you're below three and you'll be getting enough vitamin D. It's, it's an attempt to change that balance back to sunlight is good for you, but not during particular hours of the day.
0: But to, the funny thing about it is that the hours that they're saying to get out of the sun are indeed those exact hours Where you can, in the only hours, where you can actually make vitamin D because of the angle of the sun's rays on the ozone layer of the
1: earth. You're right. But now what they're aiming to do is give the UV number. So their their number that they've chosen is three. I'd argue that it's probably five to six. What they're attempting to do is saying when you get a value below around about two, you're not producing vitamin D. When you're getting a value in that two to five range, you are producing vitamin D. And it does change. You know, winter in Victoria and Tasmania, you don't get vitamin D production. There just isn't sufficient sun azimuth to be able to do that. Mm. In Sydney, you get a little. Southeast Queensland, you get more. This is an attempt to make sunlight okay again And to find that dividing line between where's the good and the harm. At the moment, what we've done is made a dividing line where sunlight is evil and the consequences of failures of vitamin D far exceed the melanoma and the other skin cancer risks. So we've gone too far in one direction of make sunlight evil, then have lousy bones and have lousy outcomes from cancer um, and have poor surgery outcomes in the vitamin D deficient person. So I think that there is a movement back, and I suspect over the next 10 years, we'll see that dividing line go up so that the focus is on get your sun, get your eyes out in the sun, get your body out in the sun, wear t-shirts, get the exposure levels of your body up to that, say, 15 to 30 to 35% exposure. We we forget that when the sun's closer to the horizon, more of the body is exposed vertically, higher above you, you tend to get head, neck and shoulders, and you don't tend to get much other exposure unless you lie down. So it's a complicated thing, but I think the movement is back towards let's re-explore sunlight in place of vitamin D supplementation. Going back to the legislation on pathology testing, it was a rational approach because Mm. everyone wanted to know vitamin D levels as though that changed everything that Mm. you did. Mm. Whereas the prediction of, do you have dark skin? Are you indoors all the time? Do you ever see sunlight over a period of a week? There are people in whom you can measure it because you fully expect levels to be low And if you measure low levels and they are right off the bottom of the scale, then a very successful intervention is to raise it with artificial vitamin D or just tell the person you are prescribed sunlight. You must get out during the following hours. Mm. If you That's can get indeed them, what I did just recently. <laughs> yeah. And if you can get a person out and walking and exercising and doing things, hearing birds outside or putting podcasts on, such as this, then you've done good for the person. <laughs> Education can be improved, their yes. love of life can be improved. And moving the body is a very, very big thing now in medicine for cancer management, for cardiovascular disease risk reduction, diabetes reduction. Moving of muscles and keeping the muscles in tone is the new big thing. We can do good on those levels without having to get into the three hundred, six hundred thousand 600,000 unit dosage. That's a convenient high dose for medicine. And the problem is the vitamin D is taken up by the muscles before it's taken up by the bones. You still have bones that are not yet calcified back in the way we hope and muscles which are stronger. And that mismatch tends to lead people in a fall to be they're more active, therefore they fall more often, and those falls are still very harsh on Mm, the people. mm. There's one other thing to mention, and that is bone is not just bone density. Mm. Bone is bone flexibility, and flexibility is built on exercise. It's built on the use of the bone, the response to the stressors, and getting people, once they reach the venerable age of 50 or above, getting them out and walking and jumping off steps or going up and down steps, That does an enormous amount to improve bone resilience without even the calcium being there. I am eternally amazed that we do bone density studies and relate a 70-year-old, say, very healthy 51-kilogram woman who's exercising and say, your bones are two standard deviations between a healthy 21-year-old woman who would be 20 kilograms, maybe heavier than that person. And our standards are just not right. So we have to get used to people having exercise and sunlight, which generally went together in the natural world. Having them at the same time and building muscle strength, bone strength, bone flexibility. Then there's a real value at looking at the calcium and saying, do you have sufficient calcium to be able to manage what you need to do. In general, gravity is the primary friend of a person who wants to have healthy bones. You want the anti-gravity bone support of the hips and the spine and everything to be responding to gravity and calcifying appropriately. You can add the vitamin K2 to those people as well. Some of the time, They're putting their calcium onto their arteries, which is where we really don't want it. What we want is calcium, whether it's taken supplementally or just in the diet. We want it to be going to the bones. We want it to build strength and flexibility of the bones. And getting the K2 in there is an important extra nutrient to be able to modify where the calcification goes on. So those things together, where do you get vitamin K from? Healthy microbiomes. You get vitamin K production in the gut. You eat well, you go out, you walk, you get sunlight... You've done most of what we do in supplementation by doing just normal daily things.
0: Indeed, you've just, there's two segues here. The first one is a recent paper uh, talking about exercise, exercising your microbes. Yes. called cool. And indeed, exercise in itself can alter favorably your microbiome. Conversely, a poor diet might actually set aberrant microbes in place, not just for that person, but for the next generation. So it's transferable from mother to offspring, vertically transferable. The second segue I want to talk about is vitamin K2, seeing as you brought it up, and a very interesting paper talking about vitamin K2 stabilizing warfarin in low dose. Uh, I think it was 50 to 150
1: micrograms per day. One recommendation, 100 to 200 micrograms. Okay. But around that range, yes. So 100
0: to 200 micrograms. So quite low dose compared to other interventions of vitamin K2. Talk me through this because warfarin
1: isn't a drug to be mucked with. No. And and if you ask most doctors who have people on warfarin, we hate it. (laughs) We absolutely hate it. Why do we hate it? Because every INR, every measurement of how is the clotting risks, uh, you know, what's clotting looking like, it varies around so much for individuals over time that we're forever adjusting the dose, trying not to get them to bleed too much and not to get them to bleed too little. But this in, is
0: indeed a simple, safe intervention where it might stabilise this yes. fluctuation. Yes, and I think but the problem
1: the, is that doctors won't want to, so they're sort of in a quandary here. Oh, hang on, you don't—you don't mean for a second there that doctors want to see patients more often, do you? You're not—you're not suggesting that. <laughs> no, I no. am not. But anyway, <laughs> no. What what we fear is, you know, we know what's the so-called antidote to warfarin, it's vitamin K. We think of them as the opposites of each other. Don't have anything with vitamin K in it because it can mess up the warfarin. Mm. Vitamin K is produced by healthy microbes in the gut. We get our vitamin K levels. And what I'd argue is a huge amount of variability is the diet that the person's on that feeds the particular bugs and the microbial variations that happen as a result. So we struggle with the warfarin because the body is already producing vitamin K going up, vitamin K going down, vitamin K going up, vitamin K, and we don't know what's going on in the gut. So we just look at the INR and say, oh, we'll adjust down. Oh, we've got to gone too far. Go adjust up. The excitement of this paper is if we don't think of it as the antidote to warfarin, but the modifying and stabilizing factor for warfarin, then we've got a new tool to make warfarin a safer drug to use. Mm-hmm. And it's not that we're trying to counter it, it's that we're adjusting the dose of the warfarin plus the vitamin K to produce a stabilised INR. And the research on that is now pretty clear, that if you add the 100 to 200 micrograms of vitamin K, your warfarin dosage becomes far more stable. The variation of warfarin dosage to achieve an in-range INR is now changed very, very dramatically. So I do suspect that we'll stop seeing vitamin K and warfarin as one attacks the other, to one modifies and stabilizes the other. And it does look really, really good, at least in that maybe from as low as 50, but up to 200 micrograms, that the warfarin dosage can be stabilized and we may be able to let people run For with much less high-intensity intervention. We won't be doing the INRs weekly or every fortnight. We'll be thinking of that as the kind of thing that every month or two you do the INR just to make sure that the dosage is stabilised as we think.
0: I think we need to make a point, though, for any medical practitioner out there particularly, and forgive me for calling you out if you like, but we're not talking about vitamin K1 here, which has a very short half-life. We're talking about vitamin K2, particularly MK7 which has a much longer half-life. And About therefore, three days, yeah. yeah.
1: So that 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 is probably what provides the stability. You're right. Vitamin K1 would complicate the problem no end because the short half-life means that the warfarin does not have that same short half-life and we can't use the control. But you're right, the vitamin K2 dose and i am all, i've also read the mk7 but is that a particular brand or no, there's so there's the mk4 brands. and the mk7 it, so there's mk4 which is
0: a shorter molecule yeah. there's mk7 which is a longer molecule the um mk7
1: has a longer half life mm-hmm. and so that's not the not to reason say that mk4
0: doesn't have actions but mk7 can be snipped off right. to become mk4 and then yes and then K1. Have it's action
1: okay but I, I mean it for the patients that i see There used to be that it used to be that warfarin was the number one drug that people wanted to come off. Now statins are the number one drug that people wish to come off. Um, Could be for a whole range of reasons, but mainly because of my patients being fatigue patients, fatigue, muscle aches and pains, non-specific deterioration in their quality of their health. But warfarin is still a big problem. People stop it in order to just not bruise around the place. They stop it also because they just feel unwell. And the people with good gut microbes with a stable dose of warfarin feel less unwell than the other people on warfarin. Doctors generally regard warfarin as a far from ideal drug that we thought would have been replaced by something more sophisticated long ago, but we haven't really found that other magic one. Certainly, we haven't found it at the price. But adding vitamin K2 is not going to add significantly to the price of it and may reduce the need for medical intervention and testing quite dramatically. I'm just going to mention
0: a letter to the editor of Blood Journal, uh, volume 109, April 2007. A letter to the editor, vitamin K supplementation during oral anticoagulation, mm. uh, colon cautions. And it's by Daryl Stafford, Harold Robbins, and Cees Vermeer. So for those people that wish to look that up, you can see the whole um, letter on the web. And I think that about wraps it up for today. We've gone through basically everything nutritional medicine and medicine. (laughs) We've gone through irritable bowel syndrome and the relevant use of the FODMAP diet. How you can indeed use apples to reduce symptoms of irritable bowel syndrome in some people. And you have to try it and see what works. We've talked about the relevance of uh, antidepressants and their harm. Cognitive behaviour therapy. I know that dangerous Mm. word. And the importance of diet in people with um, psychiatric disorders, both hyperactivity and flattened effect as
1: well. And uh, and sunlight and sleep. I mean, we, oh, we, do, we do come back to what's the what's the foundations of health? Yeah. We do this all the time. It's really important to keep promoting that because, as you know, another pet peeve of mine is really well-trained naturopaths and herbalists wanting to be doctors and really do well-trained doctors wanting to become naturopaths. <laughs> yeah. And the crossover is not yet ready. Being able to spend time with a person, go through all of those aspects of their life, undoes the need for the future medical intervention. And I think that's the powerful message, is that medicine is necessary, but only in rare cases. We don't want it to be 85% of Australians seeing doctors every year. If it's 10%, we will have succeeded in healthcare.
0: One of the great things I love about you, Mark, is the way that you incorporate the beauty of diet and lifestyle. And one of the, the key sentences, the key little snippet I'll leave our listeners with today is in their full variety and joy. Thank you so much for joining us today.
1: It's been a pleasure again.
0: This is FX Medicine and I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. This is Andrew from FX Medicine. We thank you so much for your support over the last two years. We'd really love to remain clinically relevant to your practice. So if you know of an expert in some area, please let us know. You can contact us on fxmedicine.com.au, Facebook or Twitter.